Okay, this morning, as we're in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be dealing with a peculiar, did I say that word right? Peculiar text. The title of this message is Surprised by Slavery. Surprised by Slavery is the title of this message. What does that mean? I'm not sure, but I hope to figure it out with you. Let's pray, and then in a moment, we'll read the text and get into it. Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world, not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through you. You came into the world not to condemn us according to our sins, but to set us free from captivity to sin. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful truth, God, that when we put our faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, and we repent of our sins, we are set free from the power and the penalty of sin. We thank you that there's a day coming where we will even be free from the presence of sin in glory with you forever. Thank you for that wonderful inheritance that we have in Christ by faith and grace. And we just pray as people who gather in your name that the wonderful truth of the gospel and the way that we've been set free would never be lost on us. Lord, give us hearts and minds that are always thrilled by the gospel, always thrilled by what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher of all things, that you would continually be teaching us of the wonders of Christ having set us free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. Thank you, Lord. And even though these things are true, we live in a crazy world where things that are less true and things that are horrible take place every day. We thank you that there is a world to come in which you will renew all things and we'll be free from so many injustices of this time. But until that day, we ask that you would cause us to be faithful with the lives you've given us and the salvation that you've gifted us with. We would be men and women in the world who would not only under your, understand your word, but would live your word. And so work these things in us this morning. Help us to pay attention now. Help us to comprehend. Help us to understand. Please help me to teach and to preach in a way that is faithful to you and that is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit that is free from me and is full of you for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been studying the book of Ephesians for some time now, over two years, we are in the part of the book where Paul has transitioned from explaining to us the wonderful salvation that we have in Christ to now explaining to us how we ought to live in light of that salvation. And that, that transition from the indicatives of the gospel, statements of fact of what God has done for us in Christ, to the imperatives of the gospel, commands for how we ought to live according to what God has done in Christ, that transition took place in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul said, therefore, therefore being in light of the fact that you, Christian, were loved by God from before the foundations of the world, in light of the fact that you were chosen by him, 
in light of the fact that you were adopted by him through your faith in Christ and that you now belong to him as a member of his family, that you are his very own promise and inheritance in heaven and that you are perfectly and wonderfully and forever loved and that he intends to forever shower you with his kindness. In light of that, Paul says, let us walk in a manner that is worthy of such salvation. Let us walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And then getting more down toward the nitty-gritty of the part of the passage we're, we're in now, it says in verse 8 of chapter 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's what we are endeavoring to do in this section. Trying to learn through the instruction of Scripture what is pleasing to the Lord. How do we live, walk in a manner that is worthy? How do we bring glory to God in our lives? And how do we flourish as humans and as Christians who have Christ as our Lord? And he starts out in this section of verse 18 of chapter 5 by saying, well, you've got to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no hope of living a faithful and fruitful life unless you are continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that extensively all summer long. And then he hits us right at home. Literally hits us right at home. He begins to deal with our households. He talks about the marriage relationship. He talks about the parenting relationship. And then he talks about a component that was a part of every first century Roman Greco home, the slave master relationship. And that's the section that we're looking at this morning. So we pick it up in Ephesians 6 verse 5, where Paul says, slaves... Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, this is disturbing. This is unsettling. It's been palatable thus far, be filled with the Holy Ghost. Yes, husbands, Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your fathers. Fathers, don't exasperate or provoke your children to anger. It's been palatable, understandable, but now we get to this slaves, obey your masters. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Slavery, more so even than submission that we've been talking about, slavery reeks of injustice. In the Bible, what, what, is it, what is it saying about it here? And this passage and others like it in Colossians and in 1 Peter and much of the Old Testament has brought much trouble to Christianity, to the faith. Because many would read this and say, you see, Christianity is just promoting oppression. And it's doing so explicitly through a passage like this. What is going on here? So we're going to deal with that question. Does the New Testament condone slavery? 
That's why the title of the message is Surprised by Slavery. Next week and even the week after, we will deal with the details of the text and how they relate to our lives today, how they affect the way that we live every day. But now we've just got to deal with this question. Is the New Testament condoning slavery here? This is important. You may think, well, I don't think it's important. I mean, slavery hasn't been around for a long time. You may not realize that there are 27 million slaves in the world today. 27 million slaves in the world today. The majority of them, women and children. In the last 30 years, 30 million children have been sexually exploited through slavery and human trafficking. Human trafficking, which includes buying, selling, trading, and exploiting, exploiting excuse me, of people for forced labor and sex is the second largest and fastest growing criminal industry in the world. Slavery. Fastest growing criminal industry in the world. The U.S. State Department says it is perhaps the greatest human rights challenge facing the globe today. Slavery. So this is not something that won out with the Emancipation Proclamation in our country. This is something that is a real problem in our world today, and it's not removed. Okay, there's trafficking that happens in the coastlands. This is not something far off. So this passage is disturbing. Slaves, obey your masters. What, what, is, what is the text saying to the 27 million slaves today? What was the text saying during the African trade slave, the 17th through the 19th centuries? Because surely this text was used to justify such. Was that the intent of the text. Well, I shall not keep you in suspense. I'll tell you (laughs) that my opinion, the New Testament, nor do the whole of Scripture at all condone slavery. What Paul is doing here in this section is not condoning slavery. Rather, if you'll follow it carefully, he is radically and profoundly undermining slavery but admittedly in ways that we may not expect. Let's explore this a little bit. First of all, we have to understand that Paul was writing to Christian households here, right? He was writing to the church in Ephesus. He was writing to Christians. This was not an open letter that was a polemic to all of culture, okay? This was not an op-ed piece. This wasn't a public piece that was saying, here's my view on slavery in the first century Roman Greco world. Here's how it ought to be dealt with. That's not what's going on at this moment. He's writing to Christians and he's dealing with their households and how they ought to live in light of what God has done through the cross of Jesus Christ for them. He's addressing this to fellow worshipers, He's addressing this to men and women and children, slaves and masters who on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, were sitting next to each other in the pews as you're doing now. Husbands, wives, children, parents, and slaves and masters sitting next to each other in the pews. 
realizing in the most profound way that we'll never wrap our head around living in the culture that we live in. But for then, realizing the most, in the most profound way what it says in Galatians 3.28, right? That in the Lord, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. He's talking to men and women who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and have now become members of the same ultimate household, the family of faith, that we're worshiping side by side on Sunday mornings. And then when they left church, they were faced with the reality of their households, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Now, when we hear slaves, we think either of the imagery that I spoke of today, human trafficking that some of us may be aware of, or we think of the African trade slave, slave trade excuse me, from the 17th to 19th centuries. Neither are the type of slavery that was prevalent in the first century Roma, Roman Greco, Roman, whatever, Roman <laughs> Greco culture. Slavery at this time was an accepted institution, cultural institution. That doesn't mean it was all right. Slavery is never seen in scripture as being all right. It always goes against creation. Unlike roles within marriage and roles within the family, slavery is not a product of God's created intended order. It is a product of the fall. Okay, it's always wrong, but it was of different nature than the slavery we think about today. So if we have modern human trafficking in mind or the African slave trade in mind, we're going to misunderstand the text. It was still unjust. It was still evil, but about half of the population at that time were slaves. Many of them with no other options. And from the Jewish perspective, they weren't allowed to sell their land because it belonged to the Lord. And so sometimes when they were in debt, they could sell the only thing that was truly theirs, their ability to produce labor and work. And so they would become indentured servants, so to speak. And God in the Old Testament regulated that. You mistreat your slave, it's over for you. God God forbade that. And now this context, Roman, Greco, first century slavery, Though evil, it's not the same that we're thinking of. We're not talking about someone who is radically mistreated and put outside the house waiting there, as we think of with African slave trade or or human trafficking. We're talking about members of the household here, okay? And there were, of course, grievous abuses during that time in the slave industry, as there always will be with anything but it's a different thing. It's not to say that it wasn't wrong. So what what is Paul doing here? Why doesn't he just outright condemn it when he has the chance? Well, let's think now. Paul is concerned in this whole passage where he tells us to be children of light. He's concerned with Christian witness. He's concerned with Christian witness. He's concerned with the gospel going forth in the community of Ephesus with the gospel going forth in the world. And Christian witness in the first century Roman world was a tough thing. Because you've got to understand, Christianity was radically counterculture during the time. First of all, Christianity insisted that there was only one God. That's a common thing for us. That was not common at the time. You had the Greek pantheon, you had the Roman pantheon, and it was normal within culture that everyone had tons of gods 
right? We see Paul dealing with that when he's in Athens, Acts 17, so on and so forth. Tons of gods. And Christianity comes along and says, no, there's only one true God. And then, to be even more contrary to culture, Christianity comes along and says, and by the way, there's only one true Lord, and his name isn't Caesar, his name is Jesus. When all of culture had to say, Caesar is Lord, Christians stood up and said, no, Jesus is Lord. And there aren't many gods, there's only one God. This wasn't only a source of religious conflict, this was treasonous, because in the Roman Empire, gods were connected to political ideologies. And to reject them wholesale, and to say there's only one God, and Jesus is the only true Lord, was treason in the Roman Empire. Beyond that, Christians had the audacity to reject many of the popular forms of entertainment during the time, drunkenness and prostitution. Paul, in this very text, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, says, don't get drunk with wine. 1 Corinthians, he says, don't join yourself to prostitutes. So the normal political ideologies, the normal religious ideologies, and the normal parties were being subverted by Christian truth. Not only that, but Christians gathered in secret on Sundays. And the world began to wonder, what are they doing on Sundays? Sundays wasn't Sundays then like it is in our culture now. What are they, why are they gathering on Sundays? And they heard that they would go to the Lord's Supper, and there they would eat the flesh and drink the blood of their Lord. <laughs> what is that? And then they heard that all the normal strata of society were falling in these gatherings. Wives and husbands were there in the room together worshiping. That wasn't normal then. And then, as if to just blow it all apart, slaves and masters side by side, sharing in the worship, teaching each other the word of God, singing together, bringing prophetic words to one another, ministering to one another, serving to one another, coming to the Lord's Supper together. When you take all that and you look at it, no wonder the Romans were throwing the Christians to the lions. They were too much to deal with. This was religiously, ideologically, recreationally, culturally, boundary-wise, unacceptable. And so there was much persecution already for the Christian church in the first century Roman world. So in that context then, What would have happened? What would have been the outflow if Paul had done what we all want him to do? If Paul had written and said, here's the deal. Slavery is evil. Slavery is wrong. Here's my recommendation. All slaves, make yourselves free now. What would that have done in a culture that was already contrary to Christianity, in a culture in which they were already persecuted, for truly innocuous things. If they had been calling for rebellion of at least half of the population, would that have forwarded the message of the gospel? Or would that have thwarted the attempts to spread the gospel? Was there in this culture at this time a better way for the kingdom to be put on display than through open rebellion of half the population? 
What would Rome have done if there had been such open rebellion? Rome would have done what it did with every other rebel for the previous 200 years, squashed it instantly. Rome was a war machine. You rebel in Rome, that's that's end of story. So what is happening here then? What the text is doing is calling for wise, radical justice in an an unexpected way. Now again, it started with the first pair of relationship in the text here, husbands and wives. You know that wives in that time weren't afforded rights like they are now? And Paul says to the husbands, I want you to love your wives like Christ loved the church, having given himself up for her. It was fully expected that wives submit in that culture. That wouldn't have surprised anyone. But Paul turns it all around when he says, women, I don't want you to submit because that's a cultural norm. I want you to submit because Christ submitted himself as unto the Lord. And husbands, your gig is up. I'm calling you to love your wives like Christ loved the church, having given himself up for her. That was radical in the first century. We read it and we're like, yeah, that's right, husband, give yourself up for me. That's, yeah, what? (laughs) What Paul said to husbands was unheard of according to cultural norms at that time. It wasn't that he was only elevating wives to the place of having rights. He was elevating them to the place of ultimate rights, that the husband would lay down his life for them. It wasn't that he was just lowering the superior and raising the subordinate. He was radically doing away with culturally understood authority. Husbands, give yourselves up for your wives. You live now for their ultimate good, as Christ did for the church. And then he turns to the next phase and says, okay, kids, obey your parents. Everyone's like, yeah, bare minimum. We all get that. We understand that. That wouldn't be culturally surprising. But when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And in Colossians, do not exasperate them, but rather teach them in the Lord. This was earth shattering for the fathers of that time. Did you know that in the home, fathers had absolute sovereignty? Kids had zero rights. Wives had no rights. Kids had no rights. And fathers had absolute sovereignty. They could even have their children put to death if good reason. Even without good reason, it would have been frowned on by culture, but they had that authority in the home. Paul says, forget what culture says. Dad, mom, don't even provoke your children to anger. There is a better way to love your children. Instead, instruct them in the Lord. He he didn't only raise the level of the subordinate child. He radically realigned and reorchestrated the sense of authority in the home. And then he says, okay, slaves. Culture would say you have to submit. I'm saying you don't do it because culture says it. I'm saying you do it as unto the Lord because of who you are in Christ and because what Christ has done for you. And then he, he comes with a shotgun. He says, masters, 
just as I called the slaves to submit to you with fear and trembling as unto the Lord, I'm calling you to act the same way toward them with reverence and respect. This was ridiculous in the original culture. This was insanity. I can only imagine when the scroll was first unrolled and they first read this letter from Paul in the church, people just going, what? What? Just husbands and dads and masters, just what? And kids and wives and slaves just going, yes, ha, ha. Thank you, Jesus. This was radical. This is revolutionary. This was unheard of. And this is the New Testament's approach to social reform in the first century. What the New Testament believes is that if hearts can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then homes will be transformed. And when homes are transformed, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, then there will be effective witness because the world will look and see something they've never, ever seen before. You see, they'd seen rebellion. Be no big surprise that Paul called the slaves to rebellion. He was wanting to show forth to the world something they had never seen before. Husbands loving their wives like Christ loves the church. Husbands refusing to exasperate their children and instead instructing them in the things of the Lord and masters treating their slaves with respect because after all, Paul said, you also have a master in heaven and you will answer to him. And wham, he leveled the whole playing field. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ. And when the world looked in and saw a home like that, would that not be inc- uh, incredible, unheard of witness? Would that not cause them to want to begin to inquire? That was radically countercultural living. That was far more subversive than just telling slaves to rebel. And this took Christianity out of the realm of just being another religion and another sect during the day to being something altogether unique. There were lots of religions. But when slaves and masters sat in church together and went home and began to treat each other in this way, no one had ever, ever witnessed this sort of freedom. The freedom being this, a heart so set free by the gospel that it was actually free regardless of circumstances. So that a slave's freedom was not dependent upon whether or not he had an earthly master. He was free in Christ. And that is ultimate freedom that transcends, the New Testament is saying, every circumstantial difficulty. Turn to 1 Corinthians very quickly. Are you guys following me? Yes. It's not too complicated, huh? First <laughs> Corinthians 7. Verse 20. Look what it says here. I'm reading from the NASB. First Corinthians 7, verse 20. Paul writes and says, Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. 
Were you called, meaning did you come to Christ while a slave? Don't worry about it. Look at, look at how he's reinforcing what he said in Ephesians here. Were you called to Christ while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. Right there, we know that the New Testament does not condone slavery because Paul said, if you have a chance to get free, get free. And then back in the Ephesians text, he said, there is no partiality with God. He is the master of master and slave. In other words, all men are created equal. Now look what he says. Verse 22. For he who was called to the, in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. Paul is saying here, there is a greater claim on our lives than the circumstances that currently have us oppressed, bound, depressed, held down, that are unjust, unfair, and difficult. Scripture is saying there's a greater claim. There is something that transcends every cultural obstacle to our perceived well-being. It's the fact that you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and whom the Son has set free is free indeed. You're not slaves of men. You're freed men in Christ. And you are a master of a slave. You're a slave of Christ. Everyone has a new master. Everyone has been bought with a price. And so what the text is doing, rather than condoning slavery, is introducing to us and reinforcing the idea of true freedom and therefore radically challenging injustice. And what we see from that is successful witness. By the second century, we have documents of Christian slave owners who upon salvation were releasing their slaves. By the third century, we have the Roman Empire becoming, in some ways, the Christian Roman Empire. What we have through this subversive way of true freedom, of a greater claim on our lives that transcends circumstances that causes us to live as unto the Lord, knowing that we have one master to whom we are all accountable, is it brought faithful witness in that world. It's unheard of the way Christianity spread. It never would have spread that way if Paul had done what we wanted him to do. Just tell the slaves to kill their masters and get free. Would have been end of story. Instead, we see the world turned upside down by men and women who are willing at times to suffer injustice for the cause of Christ. And, and what came was inevitable social claim, uh, social change, excuse me. Because sooner or later, the implications of the kingdom are going to take root in a man or woman's heart. I mean, think about it. You're a slave owner. It's the first century. You, you got saved. Your slave got saved. You show up Sunday morning. They're not dealing with you according to social strata, right? You walk into church on Sunday morning, no one was going, okay, so slaves, you sit over here. And the, 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 they weren't dealing with you according to that. You might have a slave who got up on Sunday morning to lead worship. 
You might have a slave who got up on Sunday morning to preach. Your slave might be an elder in the church and have authority over you. And then we're called to brotherly love. We're called to submit one to another in the fear of Christ, Ephesians 5.21. And we're loving one another, serving one another, washing each other's feet, providing for one another as we know the early church did. And then you're gonna go home and put on this master persona and be demanding and cruel. No, you see, the gospel's greater than that. Sooner or later, the implications of the kingdom take root in men and women's hearts and they begin to change the way that they behave. The New Testament's plan for social change in the first century was a changed heart leads to changed behavior, which leads to changed culture. There's tremendous wisdom in this text. Now, Let's think about our lives for a moment. Here's where we end. We made it clear that in the first century, a call to rebellion would have greatly hindered witness, maybe put an end to it in some ways. That is not the case for us. It is quite the opposite for us. When we hear that there are 27 million slaves in the world today, that is an explicit call for the Christian to do something about it. Because we are not living in first century Rome. We are not living in a time and in a culture where if we do something about it, that's surprise and rebellion. We are actually living in a culture that is looking at the church saying, why aren't they doing something about it? We thought Christians were supposed to lead in social change injustice, in abolition. We thought Christians were to lead the world in this sort of thing because it's not the first century anymore. We've done that before. So we don't have that same thing on us. Now the call is to actually do something about the injustices in the world. And a failure to do so is as devastating to our witness as a call to rebellion would have been in the first century. As devastating. The failure to do something about the great injustices facing humanity today as a church is as devastating to our witness as a call to rebellion would have been in the first century. Where are the Wilbur forces of today? I think there's some in our church. I think there's men and women right here who are called and are to be anointed by God to radically confront the injustices of our world. Men and women who are willing to live fearlessly, who have zero fear of men, who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are willing to lay everything on the line to do what Christ came to do, to set the captives free. It's not the first century anymore. Now is the time for radical action. Where are the Wilbur forces of today? I'm telling you, some of your hearts are stirred to do radical things according to the truth of the gospel. Today, as we close and we pray, I want you to come forward. I want you to tell the prayer team. I'm going to have them lay hands on you and anoint you to do something radical. Not all of you will do that, I understand. But let me tell you what all of us are called to do. All of us are called to do. All of us are called to do. All of us are called to preach the gospel. 
Because it doesn't mean much if we set 27 million slaves free and they go to hell. To break earthly chains, fleshly chains, doesn't mean much if men and women and children are still spiritually bound. And the only things that breaks the chains that have us bound of sin, death, and the devil is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation and freedom. That is why every one of us is called to preach the gospel. It's not my job. It's actually my job to tell you and to equip you to do it. If you've been in this church for any time and you tell me that you're not equipped to preach the gospel, I say, it's not true. It's not really complicated. We are all called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because listen, we could change social structures But if the heart of man is still unchanged, if the heart of man is still full of lust, he will find a way to satisfy the perversion of his heart. That's why the only hope is the preaching of the gospel. And so now we have a dual charge to deal with tangibly the injustices in the world and work toward radical social change, but to preach the gospel to every living creature, which is the only true and lasting change. Now we have a dual charge. And some of you will be William Wilberforce's. Some of you will do those sorts of things. Every one of us must communicate and put on display in our homes. And next week we'll learn in our workplaces, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you hear these things and for you, it's just a case that life feels unjust and you identify with the plight of so many who are oppressed. Let me just read to you 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, This finds favor with God. And for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Should be on the screen, verse 20. For what credit is there If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for a purpose since Christ, for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 2. Christ who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, some of you are suffering unjustly in all sorts of ways. And scripture's not telling you not to deal with the injustice. He is telling you that there is one other who suffered unjustly. And he did so in our stead. And he's touched with the feeling of everything that comes against us. 
And through the cross, we've been brought back to the shepherd of our souls. And here's the thing about the shepherd of our souls. We can trust him from the beginning to the end. Listen, brothers and sisters who are touched by injustice and pain and oppression in the world, this is not the end of the story. There is a day coming where every captive will be set free, where every chain, physical and spiritual, will be shattered once and for all, where every tear will be wiped away, where everything that reeks of death will be done away with where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. And the one who sits on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. The shepherd of your souls will bring you to that day. Until then, be faithful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have set us free from sin and you've made us slaves of righteousness for thy namesake. Thank you that you've delivered us from servitude and you've called us to serve one another in love and in the fear of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us a great example and that you didn't come to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Thank you that we have a greater freedom than anything that binds us. And if God is for us, what can man do to us? Lord, we ask that as your gospel is changing our hearts, that our behavior would also be changed, that we would walk in a manner worthy. Thank you that you have made us sons and daughters of the light. Thank you that you have set us free to serve you and one another in this world for your glory.